This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Robin Bourne. Robin is a longtime GSA acquisition professional, um, and more recently serves as a subject matter expert for federal acquisition for the Gormley Group. And today we're going to talk about schedules, GSA's programs, and anything else that comes to mind. So Robin, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks, Roger. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm looking forward to the conversation. And I think the first thing that I that I'd like to tackle with you is to sort of talk about uh, the transactional data reporting pilot. And this summer, um, GSA issued, you know, its report or an update saying that, you know, the pilot had been successful um, or the metrics were going in the right direction, I guess, and that they were looking to expand the pilot. Um, So, can you talk a little bit about what TDR is for those listening and why it's so important or so significant in terms of, you know, the, the impact on pricing and, and frankly, the legacy pricing policies? Sure. Uh, you know, we could probably talk about this for several days. Uh, the, the TDR pilot in, in stands for transactional data reporting was an effort to uh, move in a different direction uh, in the way GSA establishes its fair and reasonable prices for the, for the schedule uh, line items. So in the past, the legacy policy dates back to the mid 80s. And it's one where it requires the, the offerers, the contractors to provide uh, sales information uh, covering their entire commercial product line that they're offering to the government, they, they need to summarize all of their sales practices over the, usually the last year, all the discounting practices. Uh, and then the big, the big hook at the end is that when pricing uh, is agreed to and the schedule contracts is awarded, the price reduction clause required that there be an agreement on uh, the relationship between the disclosed pricing and the agreed upon discount that the government was going to get. And that relationship became locked in. And if the contractor uh, in the future gave any greater discount to the identified class of customer, then that would trigger a price reduction to the government. And, you know, sometimes that could be worked out in a reasonable manner. Um, more and more, it seemed that GSA was demanding a basis of award that was all commercial customers, which really ties the company's hands behind their back. It doesn't make sense, but uh, it, it was just very problematic. And because it became uh, more and more common for GSA to almost insist on it and uh, and that's a whole nother issue in terms of it's supposed to be a negotiation. It's supposed to be two, you know, two reasonable parties agreeing on a 
and, and that could work if that happens that way. But in an effort to move in a different direction, the transactional data reporting uh, that was the pilot program that was instituted only required the contractors to offer pricing. So they would offer line items and a price and no, no data was required on their sales practices. Uh, it then becomes incumbent upon the GSA contracting person to do their own research and hopefully on their own, uh, make a determination as to what they feel a fair and reasonable price target is, and then begin negotiations based on their own research. Uh, so what's, and GSA provided training to the COs, uh, and it was in accordance with FAR 15.4, which is in the, uh, pricing is a category. And, uh, and what they're supposed to do is look at first what's readily available, uh, then they can't make a decision then move to uh, similar item comparisons and, and and using other sources that they find themselves to try to make a determination that what's being offered and the price is fair and reasonable. And as a last resort, after they've gone through two or three steps uh, of their own efforts, they could ask the contractor for some information, but only very targeted. They, they should really discuss what they need with the contractor and then agree on what should be submitted, but not requesting, you know, in essence, their entire sales practices, the which had been the previous practice and which is still the practice for those special item numbers that aren't part of the TDR pilot. Well, that, uh, and, and, and then as this program matures, the idea is that the contractor has to report on the back end. So they have to report every line item sale through the schedule contract and, and report what it was sold for to the government. And then that data is supposed to be utilized by the government in buying. And it's, uh, the idea is to management and manage the government spend through this transactional data reporting. They get an idea, uh, each agency, what they're buying, how much they're paying. Contracting officers could use it to make sure the government's still getting a fair and reasonable price. Uh, and of course, one of the concerns is in the schedules program, you have a contract level pricing and then you have order level pricing. Uh, the, the TDR is gonna be reporting of order level pricing uh, and, and what's posted on the GSA Advantage is contract level pricing. So you still need to understand as a, as a GSA person that you don't want to target the order level pricing for uh, in your negotiations for a contract level price. And that was part of the training. Uh, but I'm not sure that they've even gotten to the point where they're utilizing the transactional data yet. So that's, that's one of the concerns. Uh, and, and another concern is that the contracting officers seem to be still wedded to getting information from the contractor. So, and that has its pros and cons, but they're not utilizing or, or doing their own homework first as much as was anticipated. Yeah, and along those lines, that, that idea is really the contracting officer understanding the market they're in, 
finding data using horizontal pricing comparisons, et cetera. Exactly. The other thing is I wanted to make sure, so as part of the transactional data reporting as well, the price reduction clause is eliminated because you're not submitting all that information or negotiating on that basis by the very nature, the price reduction clause is eliminated. So, um, you know, from your perspective, you know, what are the benefits of that particular aspect? I, I know, you know, I think we've talked about it before, but it seems to me the PRC has a chilling impact on competition just generally. In, in well, not, not only competition, but even participation in the program. Uh, and and part of that's driven by, you know, and I talked about two reasonable people. Uh, two reasonable people can agree to a basis of award and, uh, the price reduction could be manageable, but uh, that became less and less the case. And there are a number of contractors, you know, some have walked away from the program, others decide not to participate in the program. Uh, and that, that of course, uh, limits the government's choices. And, uh, but the big thing is, you know, you, the IG comes in and they're they're looking to get you. Uh, that's their world. They're looking to recover. They go after the big companies. And if the basis of award is an all-encompassing, all class of customers, it it becomes a nightmare. You know, well, wouldn't you call it? I, I would call it a restraint on trade, right? If you have category customers, all commercial customers, and you really you're hamstrung as a private private entity being able to compete in the private marketplace because any time you offer a lower price, it impacts your government price. And it's, I don't think, you know, if you want to be open to the commercial market, that's kind of inconsistent with commercial practice. Right. And again, the the whole idea of the schedules program is that it's, you know, aligned with commercial practice and that the, the goal of the government is to establish a schedule price that is comparable to a similarly situated commercial customer. And that in itself recognizes that all customers are different. So when you say all classes of customers, you've just defeated the whole purpose of establishing a fair and reasonable price that's based on a similarly situated customer. And it's really, it's, you know, under, unfortunately it's, it's a, it's a training issue in my mind, but it got out of hand, and so now you have an un- unworkable clause, one that, as you say, becomes a restraint on trade because it, it doesn't allow a company to operate in the commercial marketplace uh, in an effective manner. They're, they're essentially, they've got their hands tied behind the back if they want to, you know, get into a new market niche with uh, with better pricing. It They're, they're really... Can't do it. They can't do it because it's going to trigger a price. And, and we all know that there are, uh, you know, let's say national account was a typical target for yes. the basis of award. That could often be reasonable. But that national account customer is often buying, you know, across a broad ge- geographic scope. And let's say it's Ford Motor Company. They have, they have entities across the country. They might be buying much like the government does. Uh, and then you have another customer who all they do is one thing. Let's say all they do is uh, crunch data. So they buy a huge amount of the old mainframes. Well, and they get a great, great discount. But most commercial customers don't do that. They might need one. And most government customers don't need 
more than one. So that's where, you know, the schedules is designed to bring competition to the task order. And right. that's where the discounting take place. That's where the price price really becomes a, appropriate for the order. Right. And it's gotten worse and worse and spiraled down and people kept thinking, well, we need to get that best price. And it, it's you, you put a company out of business by doing that. Yeah, well, at this point, Ron, we have to take the break. When we come back, I want to talk to a little bit about TDR as a complement to the, you know, co- competitive uh, ordering requirements under the schedules program. And also just a little bit about the infrastructure people have to put in place to comply with things like the PRC. My guest today is Robin Bourne. He's a subject matter expert uh, on federal acquisition for the Gormley Group. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder. My guest today is Robin Bourne. Robin is subject matter expert in federal acquisition for the Gormley Group. We're talking about the GSA schedules program primarily today. Um, And they spent the first segment talking a lot about TDR versus the legacy pricing policies. And I wanted to continue that discussion a little bit, uh, Robin, and just get your sense with regard to um, the other thing I think that's positive about the TDR is that it actually complements the competitive ordering procedures and it sort of actually is reporting data on the federal market and how people are competing in that, um, you know, uh, and it complements both the ordering procedures, but also all that other data out there about the commercial market and what's going on there that CEOs, um, you know, now should be taking a look about on their own. Do you have any thoughts on that, the interplay between TDR and the ordering procedures? Well, I think, you know, it's it's certainly, I think, going to confirm what, you know, I think a lot of us have believed, and that is that there is really competition at the task order and that there are substantial discounts provided uh, where, where it's appropriate uh, at the order level. And so I, I think there's a lot of good uh with the tdr pilot that you know because it recognizes that and i think they'll get feedback on the back end that the government is buying uh smartly that they're getting good deals and that you know it 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 is all about competition at the task order especially in the uh you know the services area Um, the price reduction clause is virtually worthless for services uh and yet it 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 can really handcuff a company uh, when they have to deal with a price reduction clause. So services is about people and solutions and meeting the agency's needs uh, uh, with a solution that is, can only be uh, articulated based on what the requirement is. And oftentimes it's, it's, if it's correctly stated, that we have this problem, how are you going to fix it? Uh, right, it's unique, unique to each transaction in a certain sense. What, what right, does- so to try to to nail people for providing a you know a, a discount off a of labor rate is it's just it's not even practical. It's it's more about who are the right people to do the job and do they understand how to solve the the agency's dilemma. But also, it's contrary to the idea of getting value at the task order if you can't if you're reluctant to provide a price reduction because you think it's going to you know, get you in trouble. That's, you know, that's not, that's not good either. Um, and you talked about hamstringing, but isn't it, 
you know, from your experience, and you've been now both you, you worked in the government for a long time, and now you're you're out in the private sector, and I just you know your 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 just observations with regard to the infrastructure that's required, uh, both by the government and by industry to you know do this dance around the you know legacy pricing policies and the PRC. Oh, it, you know, it really. I know the large companies that I dealt with over the years. They had all. They had a whole team of people. Uh, they had to implement a pricing uh, policy to communicate it across the sales force, so that they wouldn't inadvertently trigger the price reduction clause. They had to put systems in place to manage the the pricing, the pricing approvals. Uh, to do reporting properly. Uh, it's a whole separate infrastructure that the price reduction clause uh, triggered and, you know, necessitated. Uh, some people farmed it out, but, you know, if you farm it out, you're in danger of uh, losing touch with it. Uh, you know, so, but it really required the hiring of, of, of individuals specifically to manage the, the whole uh, price reduction uh, and pricing strategy in the company. And for, can you can imagine for a huge multinational corporation doing business around the world and having salespeople all over the world, not just all over the country, what an impact that can have on, on their bottom line. And, uh, and then potentially, you know, if someone makes a mistake and it's not, caught in a timely manner the repercussions on the back end of that with uh, you know, a price reduction trigger that might have lasted you know months or years before it was caught and then the, depending on how large it was what the impact is on all, all government sales after that point should have been at a lower price and then you get treble damages if they if yeah, the, IG the, and the false claims act, right? prc yep PRC and then the uh, False Claims Act. I mean, there were over the years been some huge uh, DOJ recoveries based on the price reduction, almost all in products. Not and 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 I would say in in the, for the most cases, they were not intentional actions. These were you know mistakes, honest mistakes. Uh, sometimes uh, a contractor not fully hire the appropriate people and put in place a system to appropriately track all their pricing actions. And, and that's, you know, it's, so it's, that's what uh, goes away with TDR uh, and, and yet the government still gets access to what the government's paying. And uh, I think the key is, you know, establishing uh, an atmosphere inside GSA uh, to help the, the COs with the the job of determining fair and reasonable price in in uh, in offers where there are thousands of line items and maybe not much information for them that's quote readily available uh, and and that's right. where it can it becomes an issue of how long is it going to take them to do their job and how many resources does it take in the government to now do this in, until the, the data becomes more readily available to them. Uh, it's, you know, it's, 
I think there's some training and some maybe some uh, additional resources that need to provide the COs and because I, and we both worked in GSA and I would I would say that you know there are so many very good people in GSA and most of them are trying to do the right thing and they're very conscientious. Uh, there are some that maybe to me don't fully understand the market and uh, that's that's an area where I think uh, they need help communicating, you know, that, that the market works this way. It's different from the government uh, and, and how GSA, you know, it really can, if they don't, if they don't understand that they can very negatively impact the contractor community. And that drives people away, com companies away. And that, that limits the government's choice. And uh, the idea of the program is to provide government, uh, people with the uh, access to the solutions that the commercial marketplace has, and, and you don't want to curb that. Right. Well, that's a good that's a good segue because I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the care and feeding of the um, schedule contracting offices, and just sort of in the context of schedules consolidation. And just as you know, I think one of the the last things you were doing while you're still at GSA is helping train folks on the new dynamic, you know, and TDR pricing and how to use that or not in, in, in the context of your schedule contract. But do you see schedules consolidation, you know, the front end is the contract and the schedule itself, and that's been consolidated uh, pretty, I think, effectively, and they've done a good job on that. Do you see opportunities on the back end within the organization and how, you know, the consolidation can be used to sort of drive organizational, you know, change? Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, I think Stephanie and her team, which consisted of, of representatives from all of the acquisition centers around the country, they did a, they did a phenomenal job. I mean, I think uh, it was herding cats and somehow Stephanie uh, led a group that got it done and uh, they, kudos to them. Uh, I, and I've also, I've actually talked to Stephanie. I've tried to give her uh, some ammunition sometimes to uh, hopefully, uh, sort of reestablish environment that we were familiar with, with when we were there. And that was uh, an office. It was the office of acquisition way back when that actually was over all of the individual schedules. So now you've consolidated all of the schedules. There's just one schedule. There needs to be an office and it. Stephanie's office does not have this responsibility now. And that is oversight over all of the, uh, acquisition centers. So they're all, as I mentioned, around the country. There are seven or eight of them, and uh, they've sort of gone off on their own. Uh, they've developed their own practices. Even when we had uh, within an office over them, there were, you know, pipes within a center, but now it's it's just more pronounced. There's, there's right. not an opportunity for those centers to come together. We used to come together quarterly, discuss issues, at least hear and understand the way the different centers were operating and addressing issues. And those were opportunities to agree on perhaps a, a more consistent way of addressing certain areas of concern. And, and that's been lost. And the, hopefully they'll recognize that that is a huge uh, issue. And I, I listened to uh, a, a weekly phone call where uh, consultants are, who are representing companies are dealing with GSA COs across the country. And 
I shake my head and I say, oh my goodness, it's still going on and it's getting worse. And uh, I, and, and I said, say, these are, you know, I, I also hear great things. You know, people, someone worked over the weekend um, getting something done. Uh, but more and more, I'm hearing that there are these obscure, you know, CEOs are going off the, off the reservation, so to speak. And it doesn't make sense what they're doing. They're, they don't seem to have a go-to person uh, to sort of bring them back onto the reservation. And the, the organization of a, as a whole doesn't come together and discuss these issues and sort of keep, uh, keep everyone in, uh, I don't know what the analogy is. I was thinking of and read something a couple of weeks well, ago. At that point, let's save that analogy, Robin, for the okay. next time. I wanted, I wanted to, you know, talk a little bit more about this and just, you know, the, you know, the stovepipes within stovepipes. And I think GSA is a unique opportunity to try to address some of that. Um, my guest today is Robin Bourne. He's a subject matter expert on federal acquisition for the Gormley Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is uh, Robin Bourne. Robin is a subject matter expert on federal acquisition for the Gormley Group. We're talking GSA schedules. We you know, started, he talked a lot about schedules consolidation and sort of the you know, the, you know, the opportunity to sort of consolidate or, you know, create some greater consistency and uniformity across uh, the program for contracting officers and the care and feeding of contracting officers. Um, it seems to me, Robin, is one of the things that was pitched about um, consolidation is it provi- provides an opportunity for efficiencies because, you know, across the program, you'll be able to, the, the thought was management would be able to better allocate workload, right, and move contracts and ra- contracts around so that there was a better balance um, in, in terms of workload for folks so people weren't being overwhelmed. We haven't really seen, I, I think it's fair to say, and just what I've heard, you haven't seen the, that benefit come to fruition yet. I mean, I think it's a work in progress, but just from your perspective, what are you seeing? Well, I, I don't disagree with you, Roger. I think I think hopefully that they're going to be able to transition to an environment where uh, CEOs feel, contracting officers feel comfortable negotiating uh, I, uh, products or services in a, any category. Uh, you know, there are large, uh, I don't know, many large categories, maybe seven or eight large categories. You've got IT, furniture, professional services, uh, office products. They're you know, soup to nuts on the schedule. Uh, but we all buy things in our everyday life. Uh, and hopefully, you know, right now that what they're doing, they seem to have um, some go-to people in each center that uh, individuals who get an offer uh, from a company that is in several different large categories. If, if a CEO feels uncomfortable with a category they haven't dealt with before. They they have someone in another center to go to. But I would certainly hope that over, you know, a couple of years, that would uh, sort of go away, and and CEOs would realize that you know they're really uh, looking at pricing in the same way, regardless of whether uh, it's in one large category or another. There's not a whole lot of difference, and you know, they'll become familiar with. You know, some industries tend to discount more heavily just by the nature of the industry, but uh, 
they'll get more comfortable and they can make that transition because they have the systems to support it. Uh, the electronic contract file can be, you know, with push of a button can be in, on someone else's desk. And uh, the other thing that I think that there's an opportunity for is, is more, more training and discussion uh, amongst CEOs, uh, especially in this time of uh, largely virtual work environment. Uh, it's less likely, I think, that the CEO is going to walk, you know, they're not able to walk over to their uh, co-worker and say, uh, have you seen this before? Or how would you deal with this? And I think folks are less likely to make a phone call to do that unless they're very comfortable with someone, but it's, it's easier in the, in the office environment to sort of throw something out. And I know when I started, I would go to three or four people in my office and I'd get three or four answers that all touched on a, uh, you know, a, a valid perspective. And, you know, I would take, take from that and, and, and go forward. Uh, and it was very helpful. And I, I think, uh, so there needs to be, you know, sort of a continuous, as you talked about, you know, care and feeding of the contracting officers, so they get uh, comfortable with uh, with their job and and aren't in what's. I think sometimes if they they take a defensive posture and are unwilling to sort of make decisions that if they were comfortable, they would they would be more likely to make, and it sort of slows the process down. Right. So, I, I mean, and to, I go back to your point and the idea of an office of acquisition or some overarching sort of management structure to the um, contracting folks would, I think, could facilitate a lot of that care and feeding for the contracting officers. I wanted to turn to another couple issues, sort of technical issues. And one is, um, you know, the Trade Agreements Act versus the Buy American Act on the schedules. And because it's what, what I'm hearing you know, most more recently is that, you know, at the order level, you know, folks are contracting folks at, at customer agencies are trying to, you know, insert, inject the Buy American Act into a task order when the overarching application to the GSA schedules program is the Trade Agreements Act. Is that something you've seen before? Yes, I'm, I'm hearing it, and it you know it seems to have been triggered, obviously, by the the new administration's uh, focus on buying American uh, and the, the executive orders supporting that. Uh, all of which are, are fine, but uh, it's it's triggered a, a sort of a knee-jerk reactions on some agencies uh, that are, as you say, putting uh, contradictory language into the the schedule order so the, the right. trade this agreement did happen, robin this did happen you know during in the trump administration as well it's not it's a it's bipartisan i guess go ahead well i'm not i'm not i'm just yeah it, it, i'm just it started yeah. with the trump yeah they yeah. they they issued one and there was a follow-on one so there have been you know recent executive orders focusing on buying american and uh by both administrations and so the the buy America and they operate two different ways and and actually the trade agreement act is a an exception to the buy American act so they're 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 mutually exclusive you can't have both in in one task order so the and the trade agreements act kicks in at a certain threshold usually around two hundred thousand dollars and any procurement for uh, a, a, at that threshold or above is supposed to incorporate the Trade Agreements Act. And that basically says we can only award products that are either 
made in the U.S. or in countries with whom the U.S. Had a tr has a trade agreement, whereas the Buy American Act is typically for uh, small purchases and, and, and all, always under that threshold that, that uh, triggers the Trade Agreement Act. And it operates totally differently. So it says if you get an offer from a country that is not America, then you gonna you're gonna uplift the offered price by a certain percentage uh and so it's it's a price evaluation mechanism to favor u.s made products but the key point is you you can't have both and so it's a misunderstanding on the part of the the buying office when they try to insert uh buy american act clauses into a contract that has already incorporated the Trade Agreements Act. And Robin, that's because GSA has made the determination that the value of the acquisition is at the contract level for purposes of applying exactly. the PAA, right? It's not at the order level, so they can't. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah. And then um, the other thing I just wanted to get your thoughts on, it seems to me too, that one of the ironies of, you know, the, you know, or not an irony, but one of the interesting aspects of the Buy American Act versus the Trade Agreements Act, you know, with regard to security and issues like that is, you know, the TAA does provide a level of security uh, because, you know, that I think is different than the Buy American Act in a lot of ways, because that's a go, no-go provision, right? That if you are not either American-made or, um, and I'm paraphrasing, or from a, you know, a country that we, with whom we have a trade agreement, um, you're not eligible. So under the Trade Agreements Act, Chinese products are not eligible for purchase. Correct. Correct. Right? So, yeah, right. It, it, yeah it, it has those, you know, sort of on the surface protections are already there, uh, whereas in the Buy American, any, any product's eligible and the CO has to either insert and enforce specific prohibitions on a, you know, sort of a very specific basis and and then like 889 Huawei yeah, right right like yeah so the irony or the the di interesting dynamic is that under the buy american act you can buy as much um, chinese made product as you want after a, you apply the differential whereas under the trade agreements act the chinese products are prohibited so it's Correct. just kind of yeah. interesting done and also other products from other you know countries that aren't that might be viewed as adversaries are also prohibited as well. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic. Um, yep. you, you know, and Robin, right now we do have to take the next break. When we come back, I, I just want to touch a little bit maybe on small business under schedule and what you're seeing there. And then maybe ask you about the e-commerce pilot and where that's headed from your perspective, a, re, a program related to the schedules in a certain sense. My guest today is Robin Bourne. He's subject matter expert for federal acquisition at the Gormley Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. When the world calls for advanced electronics, we respond with C4ISR breakthroughs. When the world calls for defense from cyber threats, we provide groundbreaking cyber solutions. When the world calls for a revolution in autonomous technology, Northrop Grumman is there. At Northrop Grumman, we're constantly innovating to deliver the most effective and affordable solutions to our customers. Whether it's cyber, logistics, autonomous systems, C4ISR, or strike, that's the value of performance. Northrop Grumman. To learn more, visit northropgrumman.com slash performance. Welcome back to Off the Shelf and Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walder, and my guest today is Robin Bourne. 
Robin is subject matter expert in federal acquisition for the Gormley Group, and we've been talking about schedules pretty much this show. Um, and I just want to get your take a little bit and just your thoughts on small business opportunities in the schedules program. Okay. Uh, well, I've I've always been a homer for the schedules. You know, I used to tell agencies that you know if if, if what you needed was on the schedule. Uh, why wouldn't you use a schedule? It, it, it's it's so easy to use and uh, easy access to lots of products and services from all sorts of companies. And from the same standpoint, it's always been a tremendous program for small businesses. Uh, it's been sort of the, the entry point for a lot of small businesses into the government marketplace. Uh, they get a schedule contract, you know, they may have to deal with the price reduction clause or some other things that they, they need to take seriously and understand. But uh, because so many agencies have developed a comfort level with using the schedules, um, you know, I think a lot of small business, they'd walk in the door or try to sell to the federal government and the, the agency would say, well, are you on schedule? And so it uh, became sort of a a must have, you needed to have that in your back pocket. You needed to have, uh, and, and we used to get calls, small companies say, uh, can I get a schedule contract number? And, well, you have to go through a process, but then at, at you, you know, point them in the right direction and then they get it. But I, I really think, you know, the, I always has been about 80% of the schedule sales have gone to small businesses and that's 80% of, you know, 30 some billion dollars with a B. Well, I think it's actually, Robin, I think it's 80% of the contractors are small businesses. Oh, then, no, no, you're right. You're right. It's about, but it is about 30% of the dollars, I think. Yeah, thir- I mean, yeah, probably closer to 40. It, it far exceeds the government wide goal. And it's uh, also, yeah, it's way over the government goal, which is 23%, I think, or something like that. Yep, Maybe it's yep. creeped up. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge success for. For small business and you're right it was 80 percent of the contractors are small but still uh to have that much uh, of the dollars going to small businesses uh and you know they can do agencies can do set-asides uh if they want to it's discretionary uh, uh if they and so that's a good thing for small businesses if uh an agency wants to get you know, credit for social specific social economic areas; those are available too. It's it's just a, a great marketing tool for a small business when they're either even when they're trying to market to large companies and be a partner with them and a subcontract or something. In fact, some large companies require a small business that they're going to use as a subcontractor to have a schedule contract. It's a sort of a good housekeeping seal of approval on, on the uh, reputation and uh, likelihood that that small company is being run properly. And that the fact that GSA's vetted them and given them a, a contract and approved their pricing and the responsible financially. And it's, it's all a good thing for a small company. Right. So kind of related to that, I wanted to ask you your thoughts on cooperative purchasing and just, you know, because I know, you know, we know like the, the IT schedules are open, fully open to cooperative purchasing. That's purchasing by state and local governments. And then, you know, there's, you know, um, some security related, you know, items on schedule that are open to state law enforcement entities and then you know the schedules are available for disaster recovery 
do you, what's your thoughts on expanding, you know, the schedule, just make it a flat out available to state and locals with no like conditions. Like you don't have to, doesn't have to be a disaster. You can use it anytime. Right. Well, I, I think it's worth another effort. I know that, you know, when the, when the, when they first, uh, I think it was Tom Davis actually supported the, was in the, the first iteration of cooperative purchasing with the eGov Act or something, but that that was in 2002, and it was limited to IT. and And part of the problem is that there was a huge pushback from, I think, the heavy equipment and the pharmaceutical industries. They didn't want this. Uh, maybe they had pricing arrangements with state and locals. They didn't want compromise. But anyway, uh, the decision was made to go just IT. And again, it provides to all the state and local governments for IT. And we used to go out and talk to them. And some of them were very eager to take advantage of it. Others had their own agreements. But uh, it's, it's, it was a, you couldn't lose as a vendor because you, you, could, you could sign up for the program, but you weren't required to sell. You could make your decision at the task order level as to whether or not you wanted to go forward with it. Uh, then the, the 84, the security area was added a few years later. And I think I think over time I think that uh, there's so many states that have you know sort of a copycat program. It, to me, it would make sense to just expand it to all areas. And really, with that disaster purchasing you mentioned, it is available to, for all areas because of a, a buying activity in the state and local governments can uh, establish that they're buying for the purpose of preparing for or recovering from. Uh, potential or actual disaster, they can use that. That provides the authority to use this, any schedule for that purpose. And it's, you know, we need to get away from having these different rules for different ways of accessing. You know, you shouldn't have to worry about whether you need to justify it for this reason or that. There was 1122 program, which was another thing and had different rules. I think at this point it's worth another effort on GSA. Maybe put it forward. It's it's got to be uh, congressionally put forward as you know uh, as right, a, a right. legislative initiative. But I think uh, it could be initiated by some suggestion by GSA or maybe industry, and perhaps it's uh, the timing will be good. So we have a, quite an agenda here. It's like you know continue to roll out TDR, you know the care and feeding of the contracting officers and reallocating some of the workload across the schedules and cooperative purchasing. I think that's three good things to be focusing on moving forward. So I want to thank you for being on the show. My guest today has been Robin Bourne. He's a subject matter expert for federal acquisition at the Gormley Group. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf, Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.